Life can be challenging and scary sometimes, but we still have to live. And we have to figure out the things that matter and the things that don't. And that's why we're doing this series, Power, You Need More. Today I will tell you a children's story. I will tell you a Bible story. And I will tell you the story of your life. This last part, however, is up to you. If you grab the big idea and keep your eyes open for it, look for it to see if it will sink deep in your heart, then your life can change by what you learn today. John Ortberg refreshed my mind about a children's book I used to read a long time ago, mostly at bedtime with the kids, surrounded by a, a cadre of stuffed animals, all of who, if you had the power to believe, were alive and listening to. He writes in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, in the children's book, Frog and Toad Together, the two central characters discover, quote, the limits of mere trying, end quote, the limits of mere trying. When Frog bakes a, a batch of cookies, we ought to stop eating, they say, as they keep eating. We must stop, they resolve, as they eat some more. And I know this struggle, I know this, this tension, because I really like cookies, I, I love cookies. I'm a big cookie aficionado. The other day when we were driving toward Bailey's Island on the coast of Maine, there was this shop and it said, candy shop, big letters, candy shop. So we took a vote in the back seat. We have to stop, turn this car around, we have to stop. We went in all kinds of wonderful handmade confections and there was a special table for cookies. I went over, I love great homemade cookies and I looked and there, was, there were peanut butter cookies. And, and I still am on a, a quest for the best peanut butter cookie and the best chocolate chip cookie in the whole world. I'm on the quest for all the best food in the world. And so I, I, I picked out uh, a, a peanut butter cookie. Actually, I picked out two because it was two in the bag for the same price. So I put them in my little brown bag. I put some non-parels in a little bag, brown bag. I put some other stuff in a little brown bag. And I had that little stash of, of sweetness to take with me. So later on in the day, I broke out those, those peanut butter cookies and I, I tasted them. And I'm still looking for the best peanut butter cookie <laughs> in the world. They're a little gritty, not enough peanut butter flavor. On a scale of one to 10, they come in at about a, a six. So, but I know this tension. I, I actually had the privilege of sitting in a kitchen just a few blocks from here with famous Amos of famous Amos, Amos Cookies, the chocolate chip guy. He actually spoke in church here about 10, maybe 12 years ago. And, uh, and so I got to sit with him, and he made his famous Amos recipe with his own hands, baked them in the oven, pulled them out, set them on the counter, and I ate about three dozen of his cookies. <laughs> they're, just, they're just like this big. You just pop them, pop them, pop them, pop them. So I know, I know this, this tension. We ought to stop eating, they say, as they keep eating. We must stop they resolve as they eat some more. We need willpower, Frog finally says, grabbing another cookie. What is willpower, asks Toad, swallowing another mouthful. Willpower is trying very hard not to do something you want very much, Frog says. You want to do very much, Frog says. 
Frog discusses then a, a variety of ways to help with willpower. Putting the cookies in a box, tying the box shut, putting it high up in a tree. But each time Toad points out in between bites that they could climb the tree and untie the box. In desperation, Frog finally dumps the remaining cookies outside on the ground. Hey, birds, he calls. Here's the cookies. Now we have no more cookies, says Toad sadly. Yes, says Frog, but we have lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Toad replies. I'm going home to bake a cake. And so we live somewhere between the power and the cake. Our lives are kind of like that. We live between the power and the cake. Are you making something of your life? Or is life making something of you? What kind of a day did you have yesterday when you were off, maybe? Or, or Friday when you were at work? What kind of a day did you have? Was it fulfilling? Was it fantastic? Was it frustrating, chaotic, or kind of crazy? I had a funny day the other day. I was in, in Bath, Maine. Bath, Maine, this little city up on the coast, little sort of like Norman Rockwell kind of a village. If you know about the Bath Ironworks, they're right there on the, on the water. And there's a street that runs along the water. And they had Bath Heritage Days, three days on that street. The street was just packed with people. It was packed with vendors. It was packed with games and food and, and all kind of fun things. It was like a, a county fair and the Neptune Festival and the art show and the boardwalk at, at Atlantic City all wrapped up into this one small street. It was just packed. And I was walking down the street in search for my first lobster roll. It was not to be my last lobster roll. This was to be my first. It was July 7th. It was, it was Sunday just a week ago, and it was just a great time, the last day of Bath Heritage Days. And as I walked down the street, I saw they had a guy who had set up his, his basketball shooting contest. Shoot a basket, make a basket, and win any one of these wonderful, amazing prizes that that uh, you know, aren't that great, but it makes you feel amazing and wonderful because you made a basket. Of course, the, the basket hoops are a lot smaller. So I decided I would take, I would take the challenge. I take the challenge. And he says, three for $5, seven for $10. I had a $10 bill burning in my pocket. I knew it was going to take me at least seven shots to make the basket. So I, I forked over the 10 bucks. I thought, this is going to be worth it. I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to have some, some power here in just, in just a minute. So he says, red lines right there. So I stood at the red line. I took the first shot way off. I, I adjusted. I went over to the right. I took the second, second shot. I was off the other way. I, I readjusted. I'm starting to get the feel for it now. I'm starting to get the rhythm of it. All of a sudden, to my left, a woman appears out of nowhere. She looks up at me with big blue eyes, and she says, did you used to play basketball? <laughs> this woman had to be crazy. <laughs> did I ever play basketball? You know, and she, then she started to get closer and closer and closer. Finally, her shoulder's touching my shoulder, and she's throwing off my shots. I take another couple shots. My brother-in-law's over here. He's keeping a close watch on the woman to see if she makes any moves that she shouldn't make on the pastor. My wife wasn't anywhere nearby. <laughs> so I get to the, the fifth shot. I'm still off, but I know the sixth shot. I got it now. I shoot the ball. Before I shot the sixth shot, I turned to her. I said, if this goes in, you can have anything, and in, in, you can choose anything of any of the prizes. Her eyes just went, oh, oh. Okay. I took the shot. The shot went up 
up, 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 swish, it went right through. I said, you can have anything you want. And then I quickly got out of there because I didn't want to get into any trouble or have the newspaper show up and take a photograph and, and all that kind of stuff. But I felt in that moment power. I felt that's it. That's a power that I like to have. That's a power that I want. Did you find yourself last week easily resting in the power you have? Or did you find yourself wishing you had more power? As the days roll by, are you settling for less or striving for more? Here's the big idea. I told you, keep your eyes open. Keep your heart ready for this. Here's the big idea. Ridiculously in charge is an unusual concept to base a book on. But that's what Boundaries for Leaders does. It says that you really are in control to make the choices that can give you the power or just let the power slip through your fingers. Most days, the power that we're looking for is just out there beyond our fingertips. And God wants us to make the choices that give us the power that he wants us to have to live the lives he wants us to lead. A boundary is a structure that determines what will exist and what will not. Leaders determine what will exist and what will not. And so Cloud postulates we are ridiculously in charge of our lives. And so you always get two things. You always get what you create and what you allow. You always get what you create and what you allow. Let me tell you a story that's 2,000 years old that explains this in a way that is is hard to understand. It comes across 2,000 years, and yet everything that you need to know is right here in this little letter in the New Testament. One page is called Philemon. Paul was in prison in Rome. It's about the year 59 to 61 AD. This is the, the shortest letter in the New Testament. It's only 335 words in the original Greek text, 25 verses in English. And yet in this very personal, the most personal of Paul's communications, there is so much. It's just packed with information that can help us understand about the power, about the power that we have through boundaries in relationships that can change our lives. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So this sets up the relational side to the letter. There's a man named Philemon. He's a, a church leader. There's a church that is actually meeting in his home. And, and he and Paul are good friends. He's going to write to him about a problem that exists between them that Philemon might not even be aware of at this point that it's a problem between them. He might have been aware that it was his own problem, but not with, with Paul connected to it. Philemon is a leader. He's uh, a man who wants to know better who he is in Christ. He's become a Christian. He's living for the purposes of Christ in his community. He wants to impact his society 
with God's love and grace. And Paul has been there with them. And Paul has been there as a teacher, as a mentor, as a, as a fellow journeyman in the cause of Christ. Now Paul, being in prison, writes this letter. There's about a 1,200-mile distance between these two locations. They were still able to get these communications across 1,200 miles. And he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. And there's a key word there, deepening. Deepening what? Deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Paul knew at the very earliest beginnings of what we call church that you never arrive anywhere. It's your job, it's your responsibility to go deeper, to learn more, uh, to become uh, a better follower, to stretch your heart and your mind to its full potential around what God is calling you to do and to be. And so he encourages Philemon to really deepen his relationship. And he, 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 he credits him for his, his motivation at already doing this and for the role model he is for all those people there in the church. Your love, he writes, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Philemon is an encouraging person. He's kind of fun to be around. Uh, he comes alongside and, and adds wisdom to something and makes it better. Martin Luther in the 16th century called Paul's words holy flattery. But I honestly think that kind of misses the point. While they are words that flatter, these are deep personal words. Paul is describing to Philemon who he is in Christ, what his giftedness is, what he really brings to this team effort. It was always a team effort. It was a team effort here. It continues to be a team effort in serving the God who served us through his son. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ... I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. There's sort of a shift here. All of a sudden, Paul goes, I can power up on this issue. We don't even know what the real issue is yet. But he goes, I can power up. We can do this in a militaristic style, or we can do this more out of love. We can wrap grace around what I need to talk about right now. It is as none other than Paul an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you, and here it is, here's the topic, for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Onesimus, who's Onesimus? Onesimus was a slave who belonged to Philemon. He was a slave, he was a servant. He had to do whatever was required to get done on a daily basis. But he, he chafed against that 
responsibility. He didn't want to be a slave to anybody, and so he ran away. And possibly, as it hints at this later in the letter, he possibly even stole something from Philemon before he ran away. So he's a runaway slave. And he's been gone, and, and Philemon was probably pretty upset about that. Maybe at this point he's made the adjustment mentally that this guy's gone and he took stuff from him. He's never going to see him or his stuff again. But there was this problem that existed. And as is often the case, God sometimes takes somebody else's problem, weaves it together with another person's life, and then allows for some kind of resolution. That's how God works sometimes. And he's doing that right now with Paul because Onesimus has somehow traveled 12,000 miles, and he's met Paul, and he's been able to talk to Paul, and Paul's told him that what totally changed his life was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Told him about getting knocked off the horse. Told him about hearing the voice. Told him the whole story about how his life changed. And Onesimus decides that there's something in his life that needs a different kind of power a higher power, a power that comes from heaven into a person's heart. And Onesimus, this slave who ran away and probably stole from Philemon, he becomes a Christian. And so now he wants to give everything, all the energy, all the effort in his life to Christ so Christ can do something with him and through him. It's an amazing transformation. In 2008, just a few years ago, six babies in the United States were named Onesimus. The popularity of this name ranked at 12,145. Not a very popular name. No babies were named Onesimus in the United States from 1880 to 1982. The name simply means beneficial or it means good person. And many slaves were named that, good person. Hey, good person, come over here and take care of this. Hey, get the good person to do that. The last baby to be named Onesimus was born here in the United States in 2008. No one's been named Onesimus ever since. While it's an obscure name to humanity, it's a very personal and dear name to God because God looked down, saw a slave who had run away, saw a slave who had stolen something, from his owner and said, I want you, I want you for my kingdom purposes. I want to change you. I want to give you a power that you don't even understand yet and it will change the rest of your life. And so Paul says, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. It's an interesting logical progression of thought there. He's really your slave. He still is. I'm sending him back to you. I uh, wish he could stay here and, and help me. I, I, you know, that sort of puts him in a place that I would like you to be in, you know, helping me, but I can't do anything without you approving it, so I'm just going to send him back to you. And then he says this. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. 
He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man, as a human being, and as a brother in the Lord. He's like shifts everything. He changes the whole way of thinking about the relationship. He's not a slave anymore. He's a brother in Christ. We are all doing the same work together. And the reason maybe he left you for a while, he doesn't even say ran away, he says separated from you, was that you might have him back forever. You know, sometimes people leave our lives and, and we don't see them for a while. Sometimes those are friends. Uh, I had a, a friend I haven't seen for about 20, 22 years. Call me a few weeks ago. We had coffee and lunch together the other day, and it was good to have him come back into my life. We had coached on a little league team together, and it was good. And sometimes children go away for a while, and then they come back, and they're different. And you don't have them as a child anymore. You have them as an adult, somebody you can talk to about life in a whole different way. And so Paul is, is appealing to that argument, to that logic, no longer as a slave, better as a brother. So if you consider me a partner, he moves toward his conclusion. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Is there a cost here? Is there something he took and now you're hoping to get restitution? I'll take care of it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. In Paul's time, oftentimes, there were people that were called amanuenses. And he would have an amanuensis who would be his, his secretary, the person who would record his words, and they would go into the, some of the letters that we have in the New Testament. This, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Paul kind of comes around the back door and says, I'll pay it back, but if you really think about it, I've poured my life into you, Philemon. There's so much of my heart in your heart. You know this is a request from the heart. I do wish, brother, that I might have that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. There's always a team, always a team in this thing we call Christianity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In simple terms, Paul has made five strategic boundary moves in his letter to Philemon. First, he defines reality. He says, this is what it is. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, he was a slave. He left you. We know all these things. He defines reality. Sometimes, as, as a leader, whether you lead children 
at home, whether you lead in the marketplace, whether there's a, a business and you're the president or CEO as a leader, your job is to define reality. This is what's happening that is not right. This is what's happening that is right. This is what's happening and we must sell, this is so good, we must celebrate this. My mother would often define reality in our household with five children. She would cry out, cooperation. That always defined reality for me. You know, she knew we were all scattering in different directions and we had to work together. But a leader has a job. And we're all leading something. And defining reality is job number one of boundary moves. Number two, he shifts perspective. He moves from the slave to the brother. He moves from the legality of a slave that ran away to the, the principle of grace, the principle of love. So much of the letter, he's talking about love, which is his appeal to a higher level of morality. He says, you know, we could just judge this and close this out, and, and we can put him in prison. It's between the lines. Or we can think about Christ and everything that Christ gave for us, which I've taught you, and how we're giving our lives back to him, and realize that Onesimus falls into that level of moral reasoning. He steps into the gap of need. He says, I will pay. He knows Onesimus isn't going to be able to pay back whatever it was he took. He used it to go 1,200 miles to get there. If you have a trip of 1,200 miles, you need resources to get there. And he probably used it all up. So he goes, listen, I will take care of that. A leader steps into the gap to take care of the needs that are necessary. And then he builds on relational affection, his boundary move of building on relational affection. It's so important to realize that Paul here is not trying to, to make a, a top-down power move. He's making a heart-to-heart -heart power move. He's saying, We've spent time together. I know you. You know me. I love you. You love me. Let's build something on the basis of that love and affection that we have for each other. That's why sometimes it's, it's so important to sit down and talk. Or as one world-renowned negotiator said, more walking, less talking, spending time together. It's why sometimes sitting down at a table and having a, a meal together with, with somebody needs to, to unravel something difficult is, is so much gentler, so much easier. It allows for time and space and, and breathing room. He builds on relational affection. He defines reality. He shifts perspective. He appeals to a higher level of morality. He steps into the gap of need. Can you think of a relational situation in your life right now where you need to make one or more of these strategic boundary moves? That's how power works. And we all need more. Henry Cloud comments in his book, Boundaries for Leaders. Leaders are a positive force for good and a negative force against bad. You know what they are for and what they are against. And all he's revealing there is what Paul knew 2,000 years ago and what Paul wrote about. Positively, they establish intentional structures 
values, norms, practices, and disciplines that build what they desire, just like Paul did. Negatively, they set limits on confusion and distraction. They do not tolerate negativity, helplessness, powerlessness, or victimhood. That's just what Paul did. Let me tell you why you won't get more power, although it's within your reach all the time. You won't get more power if you let your schedule dictate your life. If you're on a wheel that's going fast and you just never think about getting off the wheel or slowing it down or checking out the wheel, is is this really the right wheel? If you let your schedule dictate your life, you won't get more power. If you're afraid of conflict, so you find it easier to maintain the status quo, don't rock the boat, don't say what needs to be said, you're afraid of conflict, you won't get more power. If you don't believe you're ridiculously in charge of your life, which is a phrase that comes directly out of Cloud's book, it's actually the theme of the whole book, from the front cover to the back cover, you're ridiculously in charge of your life, it means that that you can make a decision that changes things today or tomorrow. You are in charge of your life. When you talk about the 360-degree leader, they always say 50% of your leadership energy has to be spent on leading yourself. You are ridiculously in charge of your life, and so am I. And then finally, you won't get more power if you think faith is something you have, but you forget it's always tied to something you have to do. You have to do something. God has something for you to do. So here are the power questions that I want you to take home. Can you define what's missing from your life? What is there just beyond your your fingertips that, that you could reach out for? It's missing right now, but you can reach for it. What questions form the themes of your life? Because in the themes of your life, you have a chance to move towards power. Why do I always feel lonely? Why do I always feel angry? Why why do my relationships always go this way and, and not that way? And you start to look, and there are themes. Why is my office operating like this when I really want it to operate like that? And we had a staff meeting, and what are the themes What kind of relationships are you in right now? Focused and growing, frustrating and wobbling, neutral and just not going anywhere? Where do you need to set boundaries that have relational and biblical integrity? And those were the principles that I showed you in Philemon that were Paul's basic operating strategic boundary principles. Those are his moves. And then finally, and maybe the most important question, what will you do tomorrow to be ridiculously in charge of your life. Boundary is a structure that determines what will exist and what will not. Leaders determine what will exist and what will not. And we are all leading something. We are ridiculously in charge of our lives. And so you always get two things, always. You always get what you create and what you allow. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, said Paul, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And you can have that and you can live that 
and you can get more power. Or you can go home and bake a cake. Power. We all need more. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll press these lessons from Paul's letter to Philemon into our hearts. I pray we'll grow around grace and love and you know, shifting our way of understanding relational situations. I pray that we'll understand that we give what we create and what we allow. So Father, guide us and bless us as we seek to serve you well. We give you our lives again today. In Jesus' name, amen.